Hello and welcome to episode number 86 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been published onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, April 5th, 2010. Today we are joined by Michael Schumann, who is the Director for Research and Economic Development with the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. Michael Schumann is also the author of seven books, including The Small Mart Revolution, How Local Businesses Are Beating the Global Competition. Michael Schumann, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Nice to be with you. I saw your book, The Small Mart Revolution, on a bookshelf in the library, and it really piqued my interest, just the title itself. I picked it up and read it, and I was very impressed by many of the arguments in the book. I think one of the things you do really well in this book is describe in detail the de facto economic policy, well, the de facto economic development policy for most states, counties, and municipalities. This is the first time I've ever seen this policy so clearly stated and explained. You use the acronym TINA to describe this policy, which stands for There Is No Alternative. Could you spell out for people the principal elements of the TINA economic development policy? Yeah, and um, I mean, TINA was probably brought into vogue um, by Maggie Thatcher uh, during her reign as Prime Minister of Britain. Um, and she was talking about uh, sort of why Britain should embrace uncritically the global economy. But I think it's fair to say that economic developers um, around the world have kind of embraced their own version of TINA, and it's really built on three premises. Um, the first is to get uh, Toyota or any non-local business to local, locate in your own backyard. So jurisdictions are in this massive uh, fight to attract or retain non-local business. And then frankly, if there are any two words that one hears most frequently from the economic development profession, it is to attract and retain, attract and retain. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. The, the second argument of TINA is that you want to export your goods and services as far and wide as possible. And the, the underlying belief is that when you just sell back and forth to yourself, you don't get new money. But when you export stuff, new money comes into your economy. Um, and then the third piece of the TINA argument is that even though local businesses are not really that tied into the first two points, um, they're not that tied into the attraction of outside businesses, and they're not that tied into the export economy, that at the end of the day, they should be signing up for this because there is a kind of trickle-down wealth from larger businesses to smaller ones. And, and really, all three of these arguments are totally fallacious. And I, and I want to just go back to that first one about attraction and retention, um, because if you think about it, what's weird about the obsession with attraction and retention is that it is absolutely disconnected from locally owned businesses. That, that is to say, you can't attract a locally owned business to come to your jurisdiction. It's an oxymoron. 
And in terms of retention, if you have to pay a bribe to a local business to convince it to stay, it really is not that deeply rooted in the community to begin with. Um, so, so what one realizes is that all this obsession about attraction and retention in economic development is really a sign that economic development has nothing to do with local business, that it's all about supporting global business. And now we can sort of support this argument empirically. Um, I've just finished a, a three-year study for the Kellogg Foundation looking at the uh, three largest economic development programs for 15 different states, including New Mexico. Uh, so we looked at 45 programs in all. We systematically counted the grants uh, and loans and other money that came from each program that went to businesses. And what we found is that 90% of the programs had most of their money going to non-local business. And in most cases, it was well over 90% of the money. So it, we truly can say that despite economic development, um, economic developers being nominally and verbally and orally supportive of the greatness of local businesses, at the end of the day, they don't pay them any attention whatsoever. So can you talk a little bit about what um, is actually done to attract and retain the TINA businesses? Uh, you, you mentioned the grants and the programs, 90% going to these TINA businesses. But can you spell out maybe in a little bit more detail exactly what form and shape that takes? Sure. So, I, I, I mean, the, the, the shape is it varies a lot from state to state. Um, sometimes it's outright... Uh, grants, sometimes it's loans, sometimes it's loan guarantees, uh, sometimes it's reduction in your taxes, what are called tax abatements or tax credits, um, and usually these are conditioned on some kind of promises that you make to the community after you set up shop. Um, so I'll give you an example of how this works. Um, uh, back about eight years ago, I did a debate with the head of economic development in Lane County, Oregon, a fellow named Jack Roberts. And uh, before our debate, I was very lucky that, that the local newspaper um, did a little analysis of uh, where Jack's money had gone in the previous 10 years or so. And they charted about $3 million that had been given in tax abatements. And that is that a company promised a certain number of jobs, and then its local and state taxes were abated. So the public gave away money in order to reward the companies for bringing jobs to the jurisdiction. Um, what this article discovered was that 95% of the money went to six non-local TINA-type businesses, um, three came, took the benefits, and promptly shut down and moved to Asia. And two came and under-delivered the jobs that they promised, and only one was sort of within the scope of the promises that it made. The other 5% of the benefits went to several dozen locally-owned businesses. They made very modest job promises, and by and large, 
they kept the promises that they made. So the bottom line was really quite stunning because in tax abatement terms, the cost of the lowest job was about $2,000 of tax abatement money. And that's an interesting number because in a number of microenterprise programs in California and Oregon, for example, that's about what those organizations chart, uh, you know, their ability to create jobs is. You pour $2,000 into a microenterprise program, you can get a job. All of the TINA jobs in this Oregon example um, cost about $22,000 a job. So it was more than 10 times more expensive. But remember, some of those jobs came and went. So if you looked at the end of the 10-year period in net job terms, the cost of a TINA job was about $67,000. So it was more than 30 times more expensive to get a job from TINA than from Lois. So it really underscores that the disloyalty the unreliability of non-locally owned businesses that, you know, will move out of your jurisdiction as quick as they moved in underscores why this is such a ludicrous economic development policy. Okay, the alternative and really what you, I think, in your book describe as the antithesis of the TINA business is, is the lowest businesses. Another acronym that you use, which means locally owned import substitution businesses. What is the lowest alternative, and how could it actually be possible that these businesses can compete with the mega corporations uh, that we normally associate with TINA? Well, uh, so locally owned, the low part of lowest refers to, you know, 50% or more of the company is owned in the jurisdiction where it operates. So I think most of us understand that local businesses, a lot of them are sole proprietorships or family businesses. They can be partnerships, they can be nonprofits, they can be co-ops, they can even be private companies that are not publicly traded. The import substitution piece of it is basically saying that, that every time you unnecessarily import an outside good and service, that is, when you could just as easily produce at the same cost and quality the same good and service locally, that import is giving away a piece of your economy because those are jobs that you could have had. That's an economic multiplier that could have happened in your economy that would have produced more income, wealth, and jobs. So what, what I argue is that locally owned businesses that primarily market locally is the key to getting a community to prosper. Um, and the arguments for each are a little bit different, and, and we can go into those. But let me jump to your other question um, about uh, the competitiveness of locally owned businesses. Um, I mean, there's a lot to say here. And in the Smallmark book, you know, probably half the book is dealing with the competitiveness argument. Um, but, but let me just give you some statistics that might surprise your listeners. Um, the first one is that when you look at the private economy in the United States, basically half of all the economy by jobs and output is in small business. And small businesses are nearly all locally owned. 
Um, when you add non, the nonprofit economy, um, that, that's about 6% of gross domestic product, and then you add um, the public sector, what one finds is that about 60% of the economy is rooted in place. It's not going to move to Mexico or Malaysia. So one can say that the local economy is the majority of the economy right now. The majority of the competitive economy is locally rooted right now. Um, now, the next thing that I think is important to say is that locally owned businesses, small businesses, actually are more profitable than larger corporations. Um, if you pull out a page in Statistical Abstract where they look at um, you know, what is the revenue uh, that, that's earned by sole proprietorships, partnerships, and C-corporations, and then what's the profit of each um, after taxes, one finds that, uh, in fact, I'm sorry, it's before tax profit, um, one, fa one finds that uh, uh, sole proprietorships, which are mostly local businesses, are three times more profitable than C-corporations which are, you know, where most of the non-local businesses live. Um, and partnerships sort of fall in between. Here's another point that I think is, is important, which is that if you look over the last 20 years and you ask the question, what, what is, how, to what extent has lo the local business sector dominated the overall gross domestic product. Um, now, our bias would be that probably local businesses have lost a lot of ground. Small businesses have really been socked by globalization. I mean, after all, you know, we've all seen uh, Walmart and Home Depot and Starbucks and all these other chain stores come into our communities and our downtown struggling. But what we forget is that everything I just mentioned is retail. And retail is just 7% of the economy. And it is true that in retail, local businesses have really taken a pummeling. But when you look at the broader economy, actually local businesses have done quite well. And so overall, the percentage of gross domestic product today uh, that local businesses occupy is exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. There has been no change whatsoever. Now, there's been a little bit of change in categories, and some of what used to exist in smaller businesses has moved into sole proprietorships and home-based businesses. But, but statistically, that doesn't much matter because both those things are, are, are locally owned. And I think what it underscores is that despite public policy and economic development doing its best to destroy the small business sector, they have been very resilient. They have learned how to innovate, how to survive. And now that local businesses are forming business alliances, uh, as those are in the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies or the American Independent Business Alliance, that these these businesses are you know learning entirely new ways of competing. So I actually would say that local businesses are doing quite well at competing. 
Another piece to this argument is that there are trends in the global economy that are occurring right now that are actually likely to make local small businesses more competitive. Um, and I'll just give you a couple quick examples. You know, as the price of oil goes up, which we all know it's going to it's going to do sooner or later. That means that um, long distance trade um, to say for Walmart to manufacture goods in China and bring bring them into uh, you know malls inside Albuquerque. I mean that is not going to become a cost effective model, and local manufacturing with local distribution in an era of rising oil prices, is going to become much more cost competitive. Um, another example is home-based businesses. Uh, the rise of the Internet is giving more people the ability, the power, um, and the economy of scale to do more of everything out of their own homes. And I, I actually am a home-based business practitioner, um, and, and there's at least 20 million others in the United States who are. Um, another example is that our economy is shifting from goods to services. Um, back in the year 1960, you know, two out of three dollars you spent out of your disposable income went to goods, the rest to services. Today that's flipped. We spend most of our money on services. Well, the good news is, is that services are inherently local. And so as we shift to services, localization is really going to take off. Okay, and you um, talk about many of the other critical issues like climate change, community resilience, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial opportunity, and even creating communities where people actually want to live. Can you talk a little bit more, more about why and how Lois businesses are important for dealing with our ongoing multidimensional crisis? Well, when, when you look at... Um the say say you know in 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 my mind the big four uh of crises uh that we have faced in the last two years um i mean you know there's a lot of crises but they, these in my mind are the, are the really big ones um so that would be uh, uh rising oil prices climate disruption um, it would be the financial crisis and the falling dollar. That each of these things has the potential, you know, if if unaddressed, if left unchecked, and frankly, even if we work very hard to solve them, these have the potential to take our economies apart. Um, what's interesting, I think, in each of those cases, a big part of the solution is localization. Um, and so let's just quickly walk through them. We already talked about, you know, the oil, the oil crisis. That that really the the hidden message of the oil crisis is that uh, more local manufacturing of heavy goods that we can't afford to ship around the world anymore uh, is actually going to happen. And if we facilitate the rebirth of local manufacturing, um, we'll be able to bring down a great deal of that oil and transportation expenditure. Um, another piece is the climate crisis. The climate crisis is largely about our energy use and misuse. And I think um, there's really a lot of evidence that 
um, promoting local energy, uh, just like Mark Sardella does out of Santa Fe, um, is a obvious solution to the climate crisis. Uh, and the faster that we can move the country onto the path of renewables and solar and wind and hydropower and geothermal, the more quickly we will be able to avert uh, climate destabilization. The third crisis, the financial crisis, um, in my mind, is essentially about the separation of place from money. And, and I mean that in several different ways. Um, I mean that initially the financial crisis came about because a lot of predatory kind of global financial concerns came into communities and really pushed low-income people to take on loans they never should have taken on. Um, they then packaged those loans on secondary markets to hide the risk, and then they took those secondary market loans and repackage them into exotic financial uh, credit default swaps and the like that further hit the risk. So the further you move the financial instrument away from where it originated, the harder it is for an investor to judge the risk of that investment. So local investment and creating, you know, all kinds of new opportunities for people to invest their pension funds in local business and to revive credit unions and local banks and move more of our mortgages into these local banking institutions. That is the key to preventing the next round of financial destabilization. Um, finally, there's the shrinking U.S. dollar. And um, the dollar you know, has, has shrunken quite a bit in the last few years. It's kind of stabilized a little bit, but most people expect that the dollar, vis-a-vis -vis a lot of other currencies in the world, is going to shrink further because the United States has such a great debt, and we're likely to inflate our way out of that debt. Um, and uh, what the shrinking dollar ultimately means is that imports are going to become more expensive and we'll, you know, we'll have uh, a better, easier time exporting again. Well, again, that is that is great news for the United States to move toward localization and self-reliance. Yeah, when I hear you talk about all these things, and then when I hear you mention how uh, well actually small businesses are doing, when you look at the bigger picture, it makes me wonder how much better they would be doing if we had a more level playing field. Absolutely, and 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 this is I mean this is really the you know the, the horrifying thing about economic development. I mean, frankly, given given the legacy of economic development, which, as I said, is largely about supporting large businesses. Some estimate that you know economic development at the state and local level spends perhaps $50 billion a year. And, you know, in a typical year, the federal government spends at least as much. Um, and last year, you know, the um, stimulus package was nearly a trillion dollars, um, which was, you know, touted as economic development. But if you tear it apart again, 
it was largely about money going to global businesses. And this, I mean, what, what, what the way that this kind of economic development needs to be reinterpreted is that when you support large businesses, you make small businesses, local businesses, less competitive. And that is a dangerous thing for economic development because, and this is a point we haven't discussed yet, locally owned businesses generate far more, far, far more economic development benefits for a community than do non-locally owned businesses. Um, there's a lot of reasons for it, but, but there's one big one, and that is that locally owned businesses spend more of their money locally. Um, and, and there's a great example of this, a classic study done in Austin, Texas in 2002, looking at the relative impact of $100 spent at a local bookstore versus $100 spent at a Borders bookstore. $100 spent at the local bookstore left $45 in the local economy. $100 spent at the Borders left $13. So roughly speaking, if you buy the exact same book at the same price from the local bookstore, that economy is going to get three times the jobs, three times the income and the wealth effects, three times the tax collections, three times the charitable contributions. We're not talking about small potatoes of difference. There have been more than a dozen studies done on this point comparing locally owned versus non-locally owned businesses. The numbers vary a little bit from place to place, but they all point in exactly the same direction. And if I had to generalize, um, I would say that, you know, for a dollar spent in a locally owned business, you're going to get two to four times as much economic development benefit as you would get in a non-locally owned business. So to circle back to my earlier point, it underscores why the Tina obsession of economic development has been so deeply counterproductive to economic development. Um, and to put it in a real cynical sense, um, perhaps the best thing we could do for economic development is abolish economic development. That would be a home run for supporting locally owned businesses. Now, I don't recommend that because I think we can turn around these economic development institutions and get them to be focusing on nurturing locally owned businesses. I don't want to throw them all away because, you know, many of the people are dedicated to the abstract principles of supporting the economy. They just need to be re-educated about why the tools they're using are such miserable failures. Yeah, and also I think of when you talk about these subsidies and grants and all the things that get thrown in the direction of the TINA businesses, it also makes me think of the agricultural subsidies, which we don't have too much time to really address here, but I, I would think that the same would be true for the agricultural subsidies. Absolutely. And and really, I mean, this is, this is really why um, in Washington over the last uh, 10, 15 years, th there has been a remarkable coalition uh, between progressive groups led by Friends of the Earth and conservative groups 
led by the National Taxpayers Union. And every year they come out with a report called Green Scissors, which identifies, you know, the vast number, the vast universe of subsidies that are simultaneously damaging for the environment and damaging to communities and just purely wasteful of taxpayers' money. Unfortunately, most subsidies fall into that category. And uh, frankly, most of the stimulus package fell into that category too. If you want an understanding um, about why the government could spend a trillion dollars and move the needle on unemployment so little, uh, the answer is because they did Tina-style economic development. That concludes part one of my interview with Michael Schumann, author of The Small Mart Revolution. This first part of my interview with Michael Schumann deals with Mr. Schumann's critique of the current economic development model and gives us a perspective of what a potential alternative to that model might be and also really lays out for us the economic development policy that is, as I said, the de facto economic development policy of most states, counties, uh, municipal governments, and even, as it turns out, the federal government, especially in regards to the United States. I encourage listeners to join me and Michael Schumann for episode number 87 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, which will be next week. And in this episode of the podcast, we will be fleshing out the details of Michael Schumann's vision for a small mart revolution in terms of practical things that uh, need to happen and that many people in their communities can do to make these things happen. So I encourage people to join us for that. And I also encourage listeners to go back, if you have not already listened, to episodes number 57 and 58 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, which is a discussion of Gandhian economics with George Mokre. And in this uh, series of interviews, George and I discussed Gandhi's vision of a localized economic philosophy. And I think that Michael Schumann's vision very much dovetails nicely with Gandhi's vision. And I think what Michael Schumann has done as he has taken this and put it in a 21st century American context. For the next episode of the podcast, I will be putting up uh, links to many of Michael Schumann's websites and some of the studies that he refers to in the course of the interview. For the purposes of this specific episode of the podcast, I will just be putting up a link to Michael Schumann's smallmart.org website. So you can visit that and check that out. But as I said, there will be... Uh, some more links that will be included and shared with the listeners for the next episode of the podcast. Agro-Innovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agro-innovations. I'm also on Facebook. You can find links to that on the agro-innovations.com slash podcast website. Also, uh, our website is currently undergoing a little bit of changes, especially on the front page. I'm trying to consolidate uh, most of the content that comes through Agro-Innovations on a, a blog, the Agro-Innovations blog, so you can check out our new front page. And I do plan to continue to make some modifications to that. So if our listeners have any ideas or feedback on that, of course, that is always welcome. 
The Agro Innovations Podcast is on Red House Art Radio, which can be found at redhouseartradio.org. And it is also on WMRW, which is a low-power FM radio station in Vermont. Just a reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. There's also a link to that on the website for the Agro Innovations Podcast. And, of course, you can find us on iTunes. There's an RSS feed by which you can subscribe to the podcast on the podcast page. So if you're looking for anything of that nature, you can find it there. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.